I know it, right? Most of you are listening on iTunes to Mormon Discussion Podcast. And you love the podcast. You love the interviews I had with Brad Wilcox and Stephen Harper, Mike Ash, Brian Hales, and others. Maybe you like the stories of people who are just ordinary Latter-day Saints who have left and have come back. Well, here's the key. There are episodes that you're not even aware of that can be found on mormondiscussion.podbean.com. But to have access to those episodes that do not show up on iTunes, you have to be a premium subscriber. Well, I know it sounds like I'm such a mean guy, right? But the key is is that it supports the podcast. It helps me to keep the keep the work going. And it gives you a way to be able through that support to have some premium content available to you that nobody else can have. So how about it? Support the podcast at mormondiscussion.podbean.com and may the Lord warm your shoulders. God bless. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we present to you the Mormon podcast, That's the Best, LDS, Better Than the Rest, Discussing Grace, Tough Issues, and Faith Crisis, Mormon Discussion! On today's episode, I want to talk about being patient with the church and being patient in the gospel. And the way I want to frame this, I want to talk a little bit about the history that our church has had and some of the things that it's gone through and and why they are perceived a certain way. And so what I want to do is I want to address this problem. There are many in the church who, as they struggle with a faith crisis or ex-Mormons or people who have lost the church or in the midst of their faith crisis and they're feeling all angry and bitter and frustrated, uh, especially those who leave the church but but still seek to speak negative about it or to talk about their negative experiences within the church, one of the things they run into is that they'll discover uh, information. When they were a faithful Latter-day Saint, they discover information, and it just catches them the wrong way. They they will see this information that they're discovering, and they'll feel like the church withheld it from them, and that it was done intentionally, and that people are out to to take this fraud of a church and to sanitize it and make it look appealing so that this this message that is fraudulent can be continued from generation to generation. But that's not the case. And I want to try to help us set up a framework that takes this, this idea, this concept of how we perceive the church as a ex-Mormon or as a critic and begin to maybe show why things happened the way they did. Now, I want to use uh, a starting point, and I want to talk about Palmyra. And so, Joseph Smith Jr. is born in Sharon, Vermont, but his father's farm fails, I believe, three years in a row, and the family moves to Palmyra, New York, to start afresh. And in the process of starting over, Joseph, sometime in his early teenage years, the official account says the age of 14, but it's likely that that could have been a year or two before or after. We don't know. But Joseph has his first vision where he claims to see God the Eternal Father and his son Jesus Christ. And after he has this vision, he reports that he tells a minister or two in the area about it and, re- and begins from this point forward to receive persecution 
A few years later, he is visited by the angel Moroni and is shown where the gold plates are in vision. But he's also told something. He said, he has told Joseph, your name shall be had for good and evil among all nations, kindreds, and tongues. And then he goes and he gets the gold plates. And when he gets these gold plates, everybody in the neighborhood who is a, is, as we're perceiving in our day, as the story is told, these scoundrels, but more than likely they are just everyday people like Joseph. But they're greedy, just like everyday people. There are those of us who are power hungry and we want things and we're willing to take them from others if, if a chance presents itself. And so these type of people, they want these plates. And so Joseph receives even more persecution. So even just looking at Palmyra and looking at the persecution he receives over the first vision, over the gold plates, over the fact that Moroni tells him that his name shall be had for good and evil among everyone, we begin to get a sense of the life that Joseph and the church, because it's it's intertwined with him, is going to receive. People are after the plates. They're after the Mormon Bible, and even after the book is published and the plates are taken back, people in the area are persecuting Joseph, and they're persecuting the church in Palmyra because of this Mormon Bible. So what do the saints do? They pick up, and they leave, and they head to Kirtland, Kirtland, Ohio, to start over, to start anew. There are already people there who have been converted in the community, and so the church already has a strong foothold. And so this is going to be a new place. And things are going to be able, they're going to be able to start over. And things are going to be a, a fresh, a fresh start. But what happens? Several things. The Kirtland Safety Society Bank fails. And with it, members of the church lose their faith and leave. So now, rather than just receiving persecution from those who are opposed to the church from the start, now there are those who have gotten their feet wet in Mormonism. And now they're also added to the persecution. And so not just non-members, but now ex-members are becoming part of this group. Sidney Rigdon and Joseph were tarred and feathered. Some of those who caused that were ex-members of the church. Sidney ends up with some some brain damage from being dragged around on the ground, having his head hit across the floor with the frozen tundra in the winter months. And so Sydney never is the same. And even, even Sydney and others within the church at times seem to be working against Joseph even as early as Kirtland. We had the beginning of polygamy, Joseph's first extra sealing marriage, intimacy outside the bounds of him and his wife, Emma, Fanny Elger. And as this begins to hear whispers in the background of what is going on, there is persecution that comes from this. So what do the saints do? They leave Kirtland and they head to Missouri. And in Missouri, you have certain events that have happened. You have Zion's camp. And I believe in Missouri, but I could be wrong, maybe Nauvoo. You have the Hans Mill Massacre. And you have these saints who are given the extermination order from Governor Lilburn Boggs and told to get out of Missouri to be exterminated from the state. And so the saints can't even set down foot here for very long. So then they move to Nauvoo, and at Nauvoo, polygamy hits its full stride. And as you can imagine, whether God called the prophet to practice that principle or not, irregardless, because that's not the debate on today's episode, irregardless, 
persecution came from it. Now, you can sit and argue over whether it was deserved or undeserved. That's not the point. The point is that persecution came. And then you look at the politicians and the political things that were going on, the people in Nauvoo who were non-members, who were frustrated that these saints, the Mormons, were beginning to have great influence over political matters. And then you've got on top of that people like John C. Bennett, who comes in and practices spiritual wifery, which essentially puts a smudge, a huge smudge, on Joseph trying to initiate this principle of polygamy. And John C. Bennett is taking this this kind of principle and twisting it and turning it into something that is absolutely horrid and despicable. And so it only adds to the persecution that the saints receive. So you've got the non-members, you've got the ex-Mormons, and eventually Joseph Smith himself is martyred. He is assassinated in the Carthage Jail in Carthage, Illinois, a short distance from Nauvoo. The saints go on, they try to build their temple, but persecution does not stop with the death of Joseph. Persecution continues. It thrives. And it goes on. So the saints, in the midst of building their temple and trying to take out their endowments as individuals, can't even complete the process. And eventually, with their backs turned towards the Nauvoo Temple, they head west. Eventually, to land in Salt Lake City, the valley, the Salt Lake Valley, the Utah Territory. But along the way, they have to deal with people like Samuel Brannan, who turns his back on the Mormons and flourishes out in California. They have in the back of their memory Joseph Smith being offered by those who he thought would at least be fair, offering him peace talks. And every time he would go to have these discussions, he'd be arrested on some other trumped-up charge. With that in their memory, the saints arrive in the Salt Lake Valley. They've had enough. They've put up with persecution left and right. Yes, they've had a few friends along the way. But generally speaking, they have been persecuted very heavily. And at least within the United States and those churches that have started up and tried to make a place for themselves, the Mormons have to be on the top of the list of those who have received the most persecution. But yet they come to Zion. Come to Zion, come to Zion. That's where they go. And when they get there, they essentially put up a wall. Not a literal wall. But here, Utah is empty. Nothing can grow there. And finally, they think they can be on their own by themselves with no one to pester them. They ask all who convert to the church to come to Utah, to come to the valley, to come to the, to Zion, to the center, the, the center stake of the entire church. Everything is inward. Everything is grabbing them and pulling them in. So immigrants from other countries, people from other spots in the United States, make their trek west to arrive at Zion. Now, let's talk about the people who play a role. We want to get frustrated with leaders who want to paint the church in a perfect light. But what we fail to realize is we don't grasp the context of their story. Joseph F. Smith, the sixth president of the church, his father was killed. His father was Hiram Smith killed with his brother Joseph in the Carthage jail. Joseph F. Smith lost his father 
to the persecution of the church. Then you've got Joseph Fielding Smith, who's the grandson of Hiram Smith, who was the tenth president of the church. His grandfather was killed because of the persecution. He knew and understood and realized because he was born in 1876 and polygamy didn't end until 1890. He realized the political turmoil that was going on because of this practice of polygamy. He was not naive to the persecution we were receiving. And then you have his son-in-law, Elder Bruce R. McConkie, whose father-in-law, whose grandfather-in-law, both had these this history, this culture, this this milieu that they were growing up in. And his great-grandfather-in-law is Hiram Smith, assassinated with the Prophet Joseph in the Carthage jail. Is it no wonder, then, that the saints all turn inward, that they're protective of their image? This is just three leaders I'm sharing who obviously are deeply impacted by this history. But if you think for a moment those who made the trek west weren't influenced in the same way by the death of the Prophet Joseph Smith, if you don't think Brigham Young was influenced by this, by this attitude of others to persecute, persecute to the nth degree, to take things way, way too far. If you don't think this impacted how they thought through things, how they saw things, how they tried to have their perception of the gospel and of the church be known to all the world, how it impacted their asking everyone to come to Zion rather than all of us sparsing out among the world. Because the world didn't like us, and the world didn't treat us very good. And so you ask yourself why why the church protected its image, why it was cautious to discuss certain issues. It's because from day one, nobody liked us. And so we found a place where nobody else inhabited. We found a place that nobody else wanted to be, where they said nothing could even grow in the ground. And there we made our home. So all I ask of each of us, as members of the church, as those who are deep in faith crisis, as those who are critics of the faith, nothing is as black and white as people are trying to hide history. It just isn't that simple. The fact of the matter is, it is complex. And until one looks at the context of why people think and say and do the things they do, one will continue to see this issue in black and white and will fail to understand that until we get the detail and see things as they really are, we can only begin to grasp the love, the concern, and the protectiveness that leaders of the church have had for a faith that has been nothing but picked on from day one. Now, for those who are struggling, you need to have patience. You need to have patience with leaders who fall short because of the context of their experience. You need to have patience with people in your ward who don't know the history. You need to have patience with leaders, local or stake or otherwise, who have never had to deal with somebody in faith crisis before. Brothers and sisters, patience is a virtue. 
that is learned well. In the name of Jesus Christ, and may the Lord warm your shoulders. Amen. Say what?